Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein, and our co-host, Damien Garday, is on vacation. It's Thursday, January 26th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. We are chatting with George Gengos, the CEO of Veer Biotechnology, who announced his retirement this week, closing out a remarkable 40-year career in biotech. We'll kick things off with some takes on this week's news, including an FDA advisory meeting on COVID vaccines and a surprising, but perhaps not surprising, rejection of an Alzheimer's disease drug. First, a word from our sponsor. At Tradeoffs, we like to get under healthcare's hood. There are just all these sort of leaky pipes across the healthcare system, which, if tightened, would lead you to save money. We dig into the numbers behind the policy. I will admit, I am a fangirl of the Congressional Budget Office. This <laughs> Who's not? Yes, they're amazing. When they drop their numbers, we all go running, right? Data, research, it all informs our journalism and the stories we tell. Healthcare, policy, people. Subscribe now to Tradeoffs. So, Adam, let's start with the Alzheimer's news, which came out, I think, just after we recorded the episode last week. What happened? Yeah, this news came out Thursday night, you know, which obviously is really inconvenient for podcasting purposes. Um, It's also inconvenient because I was about to sit down to watch uh, Yellowstone. I've been binge watching that show. And then I had to get up and do this work on uh, the FDA rejection of the Eli Lilly Alzheimer's treatment, which is called Denanumab. for those who are in, unfamiliar with this, uh, Eli Lilly had kind of gone down, down the same path as Eastside. We've talked a lot about this before. Uh, they were seeking accelerated approval for an Alzheimer's treatment. The FDA rejected it, uh, which, again, as we said at the top, is maybe surprising, but maybe not. Um, the reason that the FDA rejected Denanumab was really around safety, uh, mainly because, according to the FDA, according to Lilly, Lilly did not have a sufficient number of patients followed for one year to sort of give the FDA comfort around the safety of their treatment. Um, That's kind of struck some people as odd because you wouldn't think that Eli Lilly, which is, you know, obviously a huge pharmaceutical company, very experienced when it comes to regulatory matters and sort of what is necessary to uh, meet certain like safety and efficacy criteria that the FDA needs. You wouldn't think that Eli Lilly would make a mistake like that, that, that they would not have counted the number of patients they had on drug for a year and they wouldn't know what the FDA's requirement for that would be. Um, so my theory on this, Meg, is that it was sort of a it was a handy excuse that the FDA could use to reject a drug and mainly to wait. I think what the FDA is looking for here is they wanted to wait because, again, this approval, this review was based on amyloid lowering on a biomarker. We all know how controversial that has been in Alzheimer's. But yet Eli Lilly is uh, conducting a phase three study, which will have uh, outcomes, real outcomes for patients, and i.e. Uh, how much uh, this slows the pace of of Alzheimer's, slows the progression of uh, memory loss and function, the stuff that really matters to patients. And, and those results are going to be out in a few months. Uh, and I mm-hmm. think what the FDA really wants is comfort, confidence that Eli Lilly's drug slows the progression of Alzheimer's disease, just like ASI's drug, Lecanemab, which was just recently approved. So that's my theory on what's going on here. Mm. And of course, 
Acyan Biogen's drug was approved on that same accelerated approval basis, but the difference was they'd already reported out that phase three outcomes trial. Exactly. So they had the supporting data. Right. And so the other interesting thing about the Lilly drug is that it's designed to allow patients to stop taking it if they sufficiently lower amyloid levels. And so that was a, a reason given for why there weren't enough patients um, to get to this milestone the FDA was looking for, because enough patients lowered their amyloid enough to stop taking the drug before they'd been on it for 12 months, right? Yeah, right. In the study, if patients get to six months and they have, uh, they sort of get below a certain threshold in amyloid, uh, they stop taking the drug. Uh, and that, like you said, Mike, that is an unusual, that's sort of a unique feature of the Lilly drug. Again, you know, it, this was sort of all known to Lilly. It was all known to the FDA going into this. Um, you know, Lilly submitted denanumab to the FDA. The FDA accepted the application. They actually accepted it for priority review. Um, you know, a lot of this sort of safety stuff and how many patients that you need for one year are sort of box checking things that the, that the FDA looks at. And, you know, the, the FDA could have sent that application back months ago saying, hey, hmm. you know, you didn't meet this criteria. They didn't do that, which, again, sort of I feel like lends credence, credence to this idea that, you know, really what they're just looking for is they want to see those phase three data. And we will see those in a few months. And then if they're positive, uh, Lily will resubmit. So two more quick questions for you on this. One is that there was speculation, um, you know, that there was something that the FDA had seen, some kind of safety signal that made them want to delay. You aren't putting a ton of credence in that? I haven't seen anything or I haven't read anything that that would that would sort of support that speculation. You know, it, it seemed, you know, if you want to take the FDA at its word, you know, they just wanted more comfort. Uh, looking at the safety over, you know, over a one year period versus, you know, a, a shorter amount of time. Um, but, you know, we'll know, obviously, we'll know a lot more about the safety uh, and the efficacy of denanumab when that phase three study come out. I mean, it's a big study. Uh, and as those studies, you know, they those are the ones that are going to really sort of tell the tale uh, of whether mm. this is an effective and safe uh, treatment for Alzheimer's. Okay, and second point is there was some discussion that you know this perhaps widens or or at least cements Biogen and ASI's lead with having their drug on the market. It's such a weird situation because Medicare is not yet reimbursing these drugs in any kind of broad way. So perhaps that doesn't really change the the ball game there. How do you look at it? Yeah, I you know it is a weird situation, uh, and uh, well, we know you know from what ASI has already told us and what Biogen has already told us says that they expect a really slow launch of the Kembe. Uh, which is the brand name for lecanemab, just because of this whole reimbursement issue that, you know, we, we won't know whether Medicare is going to reimburse this for a while now. And until that happens, the the rollout of that drug is going to be slow. And I think Lilly similarly has sort of said the same thing that, you know, they don't, they didn't really expect um, to even market the drug or expect any patients to sort of any significant number of patients to take denanumab, you know, until that phase three study uh, reads out. So, you know, and that probably hasn't have a huge impact from a commercial perspective, uh, just because of this, again, this weird reimbursement scenario that has sort of come into play for Alzheimer's drugs. All right, enough Alzheimer's. Uh, Meg, there is an FDA advisory panel uh, actually going on as we record the podcast right now uh, regarding COVID vaccines. Tell us what is happening. Yeah, so the FDA is essentially meeting with its advisors to try to set out how the COVID vaccines should be 
um, updated every year. And actually, the question that they're voting on at the end of the day is whether the primary series of the vaccine, so the thing that people who have not yet been vaccinated get, should that become the same thing that the boosters are right now? So the boosters are this bivalent, which targets the original strain and BA4 and 5, which are these um offshoots of Omicron, which were circulating when they chose it. Now, of course, there are lots of different versions of Omicron circulating. But should essentially it be harmonized and, you know, the only available vaccines out there, whether you're getting vaccinated for the first time or you're getting boosted, are the bivalent. So that is the voting question. But there are lots more questions going on about how we should update the vaccines. And there is a a uh, suggestion from the FDA that it should be sort of simplified along the same lines as the way we do the flu vaccine. And this has always been a framework that's been talked about, uh, and now it's becoming sort of more formalized. There are some issues with this, and some committee members have been pretty vocal about how, you know, this is not necessarily the right way to go. We need more data. We need better data. And just from the conversation I've been able to listen to this morning before recording, one interesting point that came up is that a lot of the advisory committee members think that using antibodies as the correlates of protection, I mean, they're not officially the correlates of protection, but but essentially using antibody levels to say, okay, this is how well the vaccines are going to protect us is not a good measure, um, that they're not perfectly correlated. And so we need to start thinking about better ways of of assessing that, um, you know, without having to do these giant outcomes and studies and seeing who gets COVID and who doesn't. You know, you, you brought up the analogy to the flu vaccines. Like, so how, how would that work? It, it, you know, in practice, like what it would there be like a new COVID vaccine every year? And then we would, you know, all like in the fall or whenever, you know, we, it would be offered to people. Is that how they're thinking about doing the COVID vaccine going forward? Yeah, exactly. So the, the proposal is essentially that in June, um, the, you know, advisors would meet and there would be discussion about which strain should go into the vaccine in order for the manufacturers to have batches ready to start vaccinating in September. Uh, now, that is a shorter timeline than for the flu. I think one of the advisors noted this morning that happens you know, around February for flu. But there are some issues with that because COVID is not flu. And the thing about flu is that we have this really helpful sort of situation where flu is happening in opposite hemispheres and opposite seasons. And so you can kind of see what's circulating in the southern hemisphere and make decisions for the northern hemisphere. Um, we don't have that situation with COVID. Um, and so you know, trying to guess in June what's going to be circulating circulating in September is still a shorter timeline, but we don't have great ways of doing that. And the situation right now is, you know, what we're seeing, the the version of Omicron that's in the bivalent booster is not the version of Omicron that is prevalent right now. Um, and so they have to do something, I guess, but there's a lot of arguments over whether this is going to be the most effective way of doing it. And of course, arguments over whether we need boosters at all for most people. Do you expect there to be any discussion or debate about uh you know, just how to parse vaccination schedules by by demographic, like, you know, young people, old people, people who are immunocompromised. Um, we, we have seen, you know, there's been issues of myocarditis seen in 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 young males who've gotten uh, covid vaccines in the past. Is, is that an issue here or is it just like everyone will have the same recommendation or are they thinking about having different recommendations for different types of people? I think the latter. I think they'll definitely think about the risk profiles for different groups and, uh, you know, how that should influence what the recommendations are. Um, so we'll see throughout the course of the day, you know, what issues come out. And of course, the vote is really just on that, you know, primary vaccine 
uh, question. Um, but yeah, I think that's something that is definitely being considered. And the companies themselves are thinking about that too, that you know maybe lower risk people are not going to go out and get an annual booster, even if it is the recommendation. We're already seeing that that is not something that is happening. Um, and Adam, you know, there was some new data that just came out Wednesday from the CDC on how well the bivalent booster is actually working. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of debate, Meg, about the effectiveness of vaccines, and particularly as the the virus has evolved into these new strains. Um, there was some data that came out uh, this week, uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, also some data published, a study published by the CDC itself, which which I, I guess would reassure some people that the the bivalent vaccine that is the current vaccine that uh if you have been boosted that's the one that you have that you have received is is more effective against protecting well protecting people uh from severe covid hospitalization and death than the older we call it like the first generation vaccine and so um these data were published i said this week and uh according to our colleague helen Branswell, who wrote about it i mean it it has it has sort of helped to i guess you know just alleviate some of the concerns that have been raised that that you know these newer variants of covid may may have like you know may have made all the the vaccines that we're getting the bivalent vaccines significantly less effective and in fact that is not the case I think I can say this without being hyperbolic, that George Skangos is one of the most celebrated and recognized executives in the biotech industry. This week, George announced his intention to step away from his current role as CEO of Veer Biotechnology, the infectious disease drug maker that he's led since 2017. Before Veer, George made his mark as the CEO of Biogen and Exelixis. He joins us now to talk about his long career, his retirement decision, and what's next. George, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. So let's not bury the lead here, George. Uh, retiring now. Tell us uh, Tell us about your decision. Well, look, it's a uh, complicated decision and uh, it's personal. You know, I've, I've been CEO of a biotech company since you know, for 26 years. And that's a long time. And I'm just getting to a phase of my life where I, I want to have a different lifestyle, I want to still be involved in the industry, but uh, not have as demanding a job as being the CEO of a, of a major biotech company. So there's the personal aspect that it's just time for me to move on to a different phase of my life. You would like to do that, ideally, at a time when the company is going well. And so, you you know, you feel like you left it in, in good shape and it makes it, you know, easier for the successor to come in and for the company to continue its its growth. Vera right now is in great shape. You know, we have a really good phase two pipeline where we'll have major uh, data this year on multiple trials, flu, hepatitis B, hepatitis Delta. Uh, we have a really early promising early stage pipeline. We have great looking next gen COVID antibodies coming forward. The team here is uh, talented and working extremely well together. And so, and we have cash, right? We've got a, a deep balance sheet that can fund the company for some years. So it's great shape here. It's exciting place to be. Um, and so it makes it a little harder to leave, but of course it also makes it easier to leave. And then, of course, 
there's no deadline on the timing. And so I wanted to make sure I left once we had found a successor in whom we had um, complete confidence to, to take the company forward to the next level. So, you know, Marianne uh, De Becker, who will succeed me as CEO, um, is a scientist. You know, so she understands the science. She's obviously an accomplished business leader in the industry and a great track record. She has, she's a really good strategic thinker. She has the ability to execute. And I think she's going to fit in extremely well with the culture here at Veer. So um, when those three things come together, you know, my personal uh, aspects of my life, the company doing well, and now we have a capable successor, then it's time. And it's the right time for the transition. So it's emotional for me. I love Veer. I love the company. I'm going to miss, you know, being being in the middle of the action. I'll be on the board, but I, I won't be in the center of everything anymore. So I'll miss that. But uh, I feel good about uh, the future and uh, being able to help from the board. Well, let's take a look back. I think you said 26 years you've been the CEO of a biotech company. So let's take a look back at those companies, Exelixis, Biogen, Veer, those companies focused on really different things from cancer to neuroscience now to infectious disease. Which one of those therapeutic areas do you think was the hardest? Oh, in terms of a therapeutic disease, I think for sure neuroscience. Uh, and, um, you know, in order to be able to intervene in a disease process, you have to understand the disease process, number one. And then you have to be able to make reagents that can interfere in the biology of cells specifically. And so um, infectious disease is probably the most straightforward. You have an organism, you got to kill it. Right? And so and the, and the animal models are predictive. If you can kill COVID in an animal, you can probably kill it in a human. Um, cancer, you know, we understand a lot now about some of the pathways and some of the mutations. Uh, still a lot to be understood there. I don't think there's anywhere near a complete understanding. But then neuroscience is, you know, making progress, I think, incredibly rapidly. But really understand the least about, you know, the cellular behavior, the cellular circuits that, that control uh, very aspects of neural functioning. And so I think that is by, you know, probably by a long shot, the, the hardest area. You know, George, when I think about your career, I kind of think about it as, as being sort of marked by somewhat by turmoil and plot twists. When you were hired to run Biogen, you know, that was that came amid a protracted, you know, sometimes ugly fight between the company and activist investor Carl Icahn. You know, and then while at Veer, obviously COVID happened, which, of course, just changed everything. Um, what have these experiences taught you about running a biotech company? Well, a couple of things. One is companies go through good times and they go through bad times. And you can't get discouraged when they're going through bad times. You have to keep your head up, keep working, um, you know, face the adversity that, that is, you're dealing with. When times are going well, you've got to keep your head down, uh, keep working, not get overconfident, not get self-satisfied. So keeping a, a steady, calm hand through adversity and success, I think is really critical to long-term success uh, in the industry. And it was certainly true at Exelixis. It was true at, at Biogen and it's true here at, at Veer as well. 
So you have a scientific background. Um, your successor is also a scientist, has a scientific background. Not all CEOs of drug companies are scientists. How important do you think it is to understand science on that level, to have actually gone through that kind of training? I, I think it's an advantage. <clears throat> I don't think it's essential, but I do think it's an advantage. I think when you're a CEO of a company, you have to learn to manage areas that are outside your personal experience base and personal area of expertise. If you're a scientist, you have to manage business, finance, HR. If you're a business person, then you have to manage R&D and things. So the skill set that you need is to be able to manage people to do things, not to try and manage everything yourself and to have a good nose for people to recognize um, really talented people from others, even in areas where you're not uh, personally expert. So we're all still recovering somewhat from JPM week, you know, where so much of the conversation centered around uh, the headwinds that are facing the biotech industry. You know, what's your current perspective uh, on the state of the industry and what it must do to continue growing? Well, you know, the industry has gone through a number of cycles, as you know, where there is sometimes over-enthusiasm and companies that have no business getting funded do get funded. Uh, and sometimes there's um, extraordinary, extraordinary negativity. And so companies that are deserving find it hard to get the adequate resources. And right now, I think we're not in the worst, um, you know, downturn I've seen. Uh, but the sentiment is kind of negative uh, right now. And so companies have a choice, right? Or some companies have a choice that if you just can't get more resources, then as you've seen, you have no choice but to cut your staff, cut your expenses, hope you can get some good data and that you can, you know, live to fight another day. That's a really precarious position to be in. <clears throat> um, Come there, and there are companies who have some money, um, and then their choice is to kind of slow down and make it last longer, or to step on the pedal, gas pedal, to generate good data sooner and increase the value of the company, and and, and just be that much further ahead. You know, my choice would always be the latter. We're in the industry here to take calculated risks, to bring forward innovation. And we're not here to, um, you know, be mediocre and just do safe things. And so, I, I, you know, if you ask the question, why does the biotech industry exist? Why does any given company exist? Why does Veer exist? It's to really bring forward innovative new therapies. And in a time of financial crisis, or not crisis, but let's say a time when um, money is more expensive and sometimes not possible uh, to get then that makes an extra challenge. And some companies, I think, may just not make it. Right? Here at Veer, we're in a fortunate position to have, you know, at the end of Q3, a $2.7 billion. That's enough money to run the company for several years. So, you know, if, if you're in our situation, you can continue to be aggressive and, uh, you know, just gain that much more ground while other companies are forced to be more conservative. Well, so I want to take you even farther back. <laughs> Adam keeps asking you the forward-looking questions, which are definitely probably more newsworthy. But um, 
I remember being at a conference and hearing you speak. It was in Boston. I think you were being interviewed by Kira Phillips from CNN. Um, She was asking you just about how you got into biotech. And you were talking about research you were doing, I think, in cystic fibrosis. Um, Maybe tell us that story, if you can, you know, why you were drawn to this industry in the first place, Um, and then sort of how you, you sort of outlined it there a little bit, how there are some companies that perhaps are taking a safer route. How do you think the industry is really living up to its potential? So two questions there. So let me take them one at a time. Um, I, you know, I was on the faculty at Johns Hopkins and um, I was consulting for a biotech company called Molecular Therapeutics that had been founded by my postdoc advisor at Yale and, and a couple of others. Um, and uh, so I'd been going up from Baltimore to New Haven once a month to consult for the company. Um, they were doing amazing science. And I was at the university, you know, uh, and I, I wasn't unhappy, but I was not completely satisfied because the, what the company was doing was the same quality of science, maybe better. Um, but for a practical goal of bringing drugs to patients who needed them. And I thought that was a much more compelling goal uh, than you know, getting NIH grants and giving lip service to why this was going to improve human health. And so I you know, took a leave and went to that company to work for a year. I loved it. And I, I haven't looked back. That company is bought by, by Bayer. Um, and so I ended up spending 10 years there. The interesting thing is I never would have left to go to a big pharma company. So the, uh, the biotech company that got bought by a big pharma company was kind of like, um, you know, people laundering. You, 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 you run them through an intermediate before you move them into the big environment. So anyway, uh, that's, how I, that's how I made the jump. Um, uh, and then, you know, the other big jump was leaving there to go to big pharma, good job, good career, stable, uh, to go to a startup biotech, Exelixis. And uh, that I did really, I, uh, there were a number of reasons, but a big reason was Stelios Papadopoulos, who um, I had gotten to know, who was chair of Exelixis, and who really um, uh, convinced me that I would be better off in a more entrepreneurial environment than I had been in. And I was kind of leaning that way anyway. So there I went. Okay. So you brought Stelios up, George. So I'm going to have to ask you, are you or have you ever been a member of the Greek biotech mafia? Well, of course. <laughs> now, do you, is, there, is there a secret handshake involved? I am a proud card-carrying member of the biotech Greek mafia. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the first rule of the biotech Greek mafia was we don't acknowledge its existence. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there is a secret handshake, but of course I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> We're not Greek enough, Adam. Yeah, obviously not. So you, you've mentioned you're staying on the board at Veer. Um, what, what else is in your, your future plan right now? Well, I'm on the board of Agilent. Um, uh, you know, I'm on the board of a little company called um, uh, Octave Biosciences. And then a, a brand new startup coming out of UCSF called Rezo. So I'll be on a few boards. Um, and, you know, I, I want to reach the right balance between intellectually engaged to being able to help, you know, 
companies help younger people reach their potential, help the companies reach their potential, and balance that with you know wanting to have some more time. So we'll we'll see. But I'll be on a few boards, and whether I do more than that, I just want to take it one step at a time to see. So you are not the only famous George in biotech. There is, of course, uh, George Ancopoulos. So I want to know uh, which one of you deserves the first name only moniker. <laughs> There's also George Church, but of course, two Greek Georges. Yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> so George Ancopoulos and I actually share a lot of similarity in our backgrounds. And that, you know, we, we were both grew up here with Greek as our first language and went to school not knowing any English right, in, in the garden. And so... Um, uh, I, you know, and so look, I, I know George, obviously he's also a member of the Greek mafia. So, you know, and so I, I, you know, I'll leave it to you to decide if, if either one of us deserves so it. So this is a Greek mafia thing. We, we just can't get involved in this, in who gets the George only moniker. That's a, that's what you're telling us. That would be the safest path for you, Adam. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I get it. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Cause Teresa, our wonderful producer is going to kill us, but, um, you know, parting words of advice for people coming up and wanting to run biotech companies. What what piece of advice, one piece of advice would you leave them with? There are two things you need, I think, to make a successful biotech company. You need the right people and you need adequate funding. And I think the third is you need a good board. And so if your people are thinking about joining a biotech company, I, I think you have to be very thoughtful about who else is in that company with you. If you have the right people and the strategy's wrong, they usually figure it out and fix it. If you have the right strategy and the wrong people, they can ruin it. And so it's people, it's science, it's funding. And so you know, if you have those right things, you have a reasonable chance of being successful. You need a little luck along the way too. Well, George, again, congrats on the retirement and thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, appreciate it. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Ambonato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you'd be willing to get a COVID vaccine every year. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Um, And I'm breaking the fourth wall. I was looking at something. I just had a weird thought that I was looking at our write-up on our live blog. It said that, you know, 19... 19% 19% of people in America have not had a sing- had any COVID vaccinations at all. That is crazy. But I was also wondering, like, of those 19%, I wonder if any of them have not gotten COVID. Mm, like, yeah. what percentage of people in America have, A, never been vaccinated for COVID, and B, never Are gotten totally seronaive, as they say. Like, yeah, like, I don't know. That's just a science fiction thought I had.